Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. I love today's guest. She is Dawn Porter. Dawn is one of the most acclaimed, successful documentary filmmakers in America today. She's emerged in the entertainment industry as a leader in the art of storytelling, directing, and producing critically acclaimed films and series. She's a two-time Sundance Film Festival director, and her work has been featured on HBO, Netflix, CNN, PBS, MSNBC, and a whole bunch of others. Uh, her latest film is The Lady Bird Diaries, which is an all-archival all documentary about Lady Bird Johnson. Her next project, Supreme, is a four-part docuseries exploring the history of the United States Supreme Court the justices, its decisions, and confirmation battles that have shaped America. Dawn, welcome into the back room. Thank you for having me. You have become one of the most acclaimed, successful, distinguished documentary filmmakers in the country. But it's not often one gets to say to somebody, but I knew you when. <laughs> you certainly did. So I, I can say I knew you when. And I want to get to that in a second. But before we go into the business of film, I want to peel back the onion a little bit and talk about young Dawn. What was young Dawn like? Were you one of these kids that was just watching movies and dreamed one day of making movies? I know you became a lawyer, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But was this business that you're in now and perhaps the subject matter of the business, social injustice, social injustice, were these things that always grabbed you as a kid or, or were you just into like normal kid stuff? I was pretty normal kid stuff. I was a big reader. I loved reading. The joke in my family was you throw the dog a bone and you throw Dawn a book. I would like that would keep me busy. Um, yeah, I had, I had a, you know, up until, up until my father died, I had a pretty idyllic, you know, kind of childhood situation. We lived upstate, we, upstate. We lived in Rockland County, oh, New York. Mountains. You know, up, upstate. Um, but we had one of those like 1970s, you know, you open the door on Saturdays and you go out and you come back when it's dusk and mm -hmm. in between then you ride your bikes and you go to other people's houses and your parents have no idea where you are. And, you know, we had clubhouses. And the Wonder Years. And yeah, yeah, it was it was nice, you know. It was it was nobody's doors were really locked because we were going and back and forth. The Mooney boys were like they like to play like touch football at the back. I mean, it was just like, you know, a bunch of different families each had like a few kids. Mm -hmm. So so I wasn't like, you know, justice. I was more like into Nancy Drew. My friend Jill had all of the Nancy Drews, all of them. I'd like never seen so many in one place. And I thought that that was like a pretty ideal life. Well, it's kind of a, a little bit of a genesis of like figuring out stuff and fighting crime I, I, in a way. And I, <laughs> I mean, I was right. into, I was very curious about things. I was very curious. And I think, you know, when you start out being a reader and it kind of transports you to different places, and, you know, a lot of stories are like, like kid fighting crime, you know, like getting the bad guys kind of thing. And so you eventually ended up in law. And I, when I met you, you were working, I believe, at A&E. So you mm -hmm. ended up in the entertainment area of law. Is that where you started in law? No, I started, I worked for a firm for five years. I worked for Baker Haas Settler in Washington, D.C., and I did litigation. So I did yeah, like corporate just stuff. all kinds, yeah, corporate litigation on the defense side. 
And I did a little bit of representing newspapers. And in college, I had written for the newspaper. In high school, I wrote for the newspaper. So I definitely had that kind of journalism, you know, bug in me somewhere. And then a partner that I worked for got hired to, to be the head of litigation at ABC television and said, do you want to come with me? And I was a fifth year associate. I was brand new married and I wasn't seeing a lot of women with lives that I wanted to have. You know, I wanted to have kids. I wanted to have a life. I wanted to leave. And my my little farm was, was a decent one. You know, it wasn't like I was, I wasn't Bartleby the Scrivener, like in the basement, you know, going through documents all the time, but I still kind of felt like there was more. And to tell you the truth, my best friend at the firm died. She had ovarian cancer. And when she died, she was in her thirties. And when she died, it was so shocking to me. I didn't know anybody that young who died. And you know, like that Chili Peppers song, this life is not a run through. It like hit me. I was like, oh my God. Like I had to make intentional choices. I can't just drift into a life. So I kind of said to myself, the next thing that I'm curious about and kind of want to do, I'm going to just say yes. I'm not going to be that cautious lawyer person. I'm going to say yes to something that's a little scary. And it was leaving DC. We had a very nice life. My parents lived there. My sisters were there. And moving back to New York and working at a corporation and like for me, that was like frightening. You know, it was like the unknown. I had a I had a good setup at the firm. It was very secure. And so I was there, I was in-house legal, and then I moved to standards and practices at the news division. And that's really where it started to occur to me, like I could do this. Like I could make things instead of just being the lawyer, the advisor to the side person. Um, so I did the way that my boss had set up the job was we were kicking the tires on the journalism. Do we have enough facts? Are we being ethical? Do we share confidential information? When do we share it? How much do we, do we have enough to go? So like the first really big thing I did was when all the networks called the presidency wrong. And I was, you know, asked by the president of the news division, go find out how we did this. So it was very much like being a lawyer. It was like, but it was like, it was puzzles. Like what? A to B to C to D. And what it turned out is we'd never had an election that close. And our safeguards weren't strong enough to, you know, to kind of prevent us from making the wrong calls. So that was fun. That was exciting. And then I did that and I had both kids. And then this is where you come in, moved to A&E. I'm at A&E for a few years. Also fun because I was learning the business. I was learning the business of cable television, which is very different than news. But there for a little while, it was right when reality TV was really like taken off. And I was like, this is not why I'm leaving my kids. I'm not keeping the world safe for Dog the Bounty Hunter. That's not what I'm supposed to be doing. So then I started thinking, okay, wait, I could do this. I could like, but by then I thought, well, I have this experience as a lawyer. I have contacts. I know something of the business. I met Brian, your friend, at the pool mm-hmm. at the Montclair Beach Club, mm-hmm. that hotbed of corporate entanglements. Where all the big Hollywood deals go down. Where all the big Hollywood <laughs> deals come on. And, and I just announced, I'm like, yeah, you know, we're producing. Oh, my God. I just was like, we're producing. And he's like, my friend has a film. And I was like, okay. So 
you know, you're the first credit we had. We raised some money. We had a very classic Hollywood experience. Our big financier dropped out. I was like, people drop out? Like, I didn't know that many unreliable people. Like, if you work for a law firm and then in a corporation, people do what they say. But you know what I saw there, Andy, you know, what you were doing, getting Adrian's movie made is you were just being determined. You were just using being smart and being determined to figure it out and pivoting. And that was really impressive to me because you didn't even consider the possibility that it would not happen. It was just like whatever obstacle came, head on, pivot, head on, pivot. And that really, you know, that, that really made a big impression on me that things aren't so neat like they are in a law firm, you know, they're not so neat. And maybe what you rely on is yourself. And just for some context for the people listening, when my late wife, Adrienne Shelley, uh, actor and filmmaker, best known for Waitress and the Hal Hartley movies, when she died in 2006, at that time of her death, she had no idea that Waitress would even get into Sundance. So she died just a struggling filmmaker. Of course, it went on to huge commercial success. And then the story went on to be a smash Broadway musical 10 years later. But uh, she was shopping around this little story called Serious Moonlight. And uh, after she died, I decided, you know, that in retrospect, I realized that that was my therapy. I didn't go to therapy. I made a movie. I mean, that movie was in the can 13 months after she died, which I still don't understand how. But obviously, true with the help of people like you. Um, I decided I was going to get her work made. And Brian DeLate, a great friend of mine and someone I had worked with, um, you guys, like you said, lived in the same neighborhood and were hanging around the pool one day. And he knew that I was out there trying to raise the money because I had gone and taken every meeting that she took in L.A. before she died. And every one of those people said, oh, we're going to bring in a great writer and change the story and change this and change that. And I was like, well, then what's the point of me getting this film made? The whole point is to have it be like a legacy project where it's in her words, as close to how she would have made it. And I was like, well, screw it. I'm just going to do it myself. And you guys came along, you and your husband, David Graff, and uh, you were one of our biggest, uh, uh, not our biggest, uh, with your partner, Todd, um, mm -hmm. investors. And we got this movie made. We filmed it, I think, in 15 days. And it mm -hmm. starred Meg Ryan and Timothy Hutton and Justin Long and Kristen Bell. Charl Hines directed it. And so you, you, cut, first credit. you cut your teeth on that as an produ executive producer. I remember you just saying, like, you know, we, we want to get into the film business. You know, how many people want to get into the film business? They don't end up Don Porter, which is astounding to me when you talk about my journey. I mean, I look at yours and I've followed you over the years and it's truly incredible how you went from, oh, screw it. I'm not going to be this lawyer lady anymore. I'm just going to go be a great documentary filmmaker. And you did it. And you're making the most incredible films. So who were your early inspirations as you were making that transition? Who did you look at and go, I want to be like that? Um, definitely Steve James, you know, who made Hoop Dreams, mm -hmm. The Interrupters, you know, and so many other movies. And what I liked about what Steve did is he didn't put himself in movies. That's just not, not me. I'm a more like observing kind of person in that way. But I felt like he gave his subjects so much agency and, you know, just 
just it's just like these lyrical sink into it movies where you are swept away in somebody else's life in a way that feels immersive. And I, I really want, I love to, I love that. So I love like Jesus Camp, you know, by Heidi and Rachel, Great. you know, beautiful movie. So it was movies like that. When I saw that, I was like, I didn't say I could do that. I said, I wanted, I, I wanted to do that, you know, which is a big difference. <laughs> but what I did know is, you know, because I was a litigator, you know, if you really break down what lawyers, litigators do, we, I took a lot of depositions, which meant I had to listen to people really carefully. I took a lot, a lot, a lot of depositions, wrote a lot of briefs. And when you're writing a brief, what you do is you make something complicated, comprehensible. And, you know, there you're an advocate. So you're making your, but you're telling a story. And if you're good at it, and the thing about Henry Overman, who was my boss at the firm for a while, is he was a great writer. And you would read his briefs like a book, you know, but there there were citations. And so when I started, my first film was Gideon's Army. And I thought I was introduced to them by this woman I knew, uh, Kirsten Levingston. And Kirsten was also a lawyer. She was working at the Ford Foundation. It was her first time really in philanthropy. And so I just knew her. I went and pitched her some things fresh off the success of Serious Moonlight. And uh, she was like, no, we don't really do all the things that I said. She said, but are you interested in any of our grantees? And I was like, well, I'm really interested in those public defenders. And she said, well, why don't you go film something and bring it back? So I was like begging, borrowing, and stealing from, not stealing, but begging and borrowing from my friends. And I went to Alabama and I get there and there's these young lawyers and they're talking about the constitution and they're talking about justice and they're so happy. And I thought, I don't know any lawyers like this. So, but I thought like, you know, one of the questions I think you should ask yourself when you're a filmmaker is like, why am I the person to tell this story? You know, there's lots of stories out there. Is there something I can bring to it? besides just being a fly on the wall. And so I was like, I know what it takes to go to law school. I know what that pressure is like. I know what it's like to be the first in your family to go to law school and how much pressure that is. You don't, you don't want to fail, you know? And so I knew something about what each of these young kids, these were not rich kids, was facing. And I thought, well, I can understand some of what they're going through. Maybe I can help translate that. Like the questions I'm going to ask them are going to be different than somebody who doesn't know that. But I also knew, I didn't know a thing about being a criminal defense lawyer. And so I was like, let me ask what people want to know. How do you defend those people? How do you defend somebody who might be guilty? How do you do that? And so that became like the animating question of the movie. And then it, it's a lot of listening. And, you know, my father was a photographer. And so... We did used to make Super 8 movies when I was very little, but I, and I always had a camera with me, a still camera. And then I was like, wow, you could make the pictures talk. <laughs> and so it just felt like all of these things that I love came together. There was like a puzzle, figuring out a puzzle, um, pictures, listening, making something understandable, you know, and then for the things that I didn't know, which was a lot, like, I was like, you work with really good people, you know, you find people who do know what that is. 
and then you let them do their thing. And that's how we've always worked is like, I don't edit. I don't really, but I have people who do that, you know, and there's mutual respect there. Yeah. What you're saying really resonates with me because as you know, I, I made one documentary a couple of years ago about Adrian with HBO. And there was a point where I went to several friends of mine, lawyers, film people, directors, whatever. And I was like, am I crazy to to do this myself and they, and they were all like no you probably are the only one who can do it because it's such a personal story and i and what i'm hearing you say is it is literally the same thing i've said a hundred times <clears throat> and that is you get to a certain point in your life and you just sort of look at what you've done and you're like i've got skills may not be directing a film skill but I've got skills that I can apply to that. I've been through life. I've directed people. I've directed situations. And in the areas that I don't really have experience, I can go work with people who do. But the thing that I always felt that I had with my film, and I, it sounds like you're in the same situation when you first started out, is that if you have a really strong vision, that's everything. Because if you have a strong vision but no experience, you can hire the people with experience, and they'll help you execute. If you've got a ton of experience, but no vision, you're going to make a really bad movie. And so I, I so I so agree with that. And I think, you know, what I always say is like, do you have something to say? And what do you want to say? Because if you have something to say and you have to be able to articulate it, I have to be able to describe to an editor what I'm looking for and what I see. And then I want to hear what, what they see, because, you know, you, you get your feelings hurt when your editor is like, well, the film you shot. <laughs> is not what you say you want. Right. And then you and then you take that and like you don't make that mistake the next time. You shoot it the way that you want to see it. But, you know, you have to everybody has to start somewhere. So like, you know, at some point it's like, well, why not? Why not me? But it's know? scary at the beginning when you like if you have a DP who's exper really experienced or other people on set with you and they're saying, oh, I wouldn't do that. But you intuitively know it's the right thing to do. There's that moment where you say to yourself, but like, you're the experts. I'm not. But then it you got to go back. You have to have the confidence to stick you with do. that vision. And it's not an easy you thing do, to do. You do. And that's, it's not, it's really not, especially because it's so expensive. Right. And because, especially in documentary, you really get one shot. There's no new retakes. Right. Hey, can oh, you cry not... again? Can you cry again? Right, no, exactly. Mm -hmm. I actually have a funny story about that. And I was really lucky in that the first people, and this is such, this is luck. And a lot of life is luck, which we all should acknowledge. And my luck was the very first real shoot I did. I literally, I don't recommend doing this. We just like hired some guy in Alabama who advertised that he was a shooter, right? And he turned out to be a really nice guy as well as a really good shooter. And so I, I, because I was using my vacation to do this shoot, I only had a week. And so I go down for like, I don't know, five days to Alabama in the summer. We're doing our shoot. And like day three, he says, he was supposed to be doing sound actually. Somebody else was shooting. And he says to the, I didn't know at the time, but he also was a shooter. And he says to the shooting guy, he's like, you know, she really likes those tight frames. And I was like, I do. And I realized I was always saying, can you get closer? Can you get closer? And him just saying that, I was like, oh, he's noticing. I'm saying something. I have an opinion. And he's noticed it. And he thinks that's fine. He's just like, 
making sure that it's shot correctly. And then the second thing he did is I had to leave. I was out of money. I was out of vacation days. And he said to me, do you mind if I keep shooting? I feel like what's happening here is really special. Mm. This, this, the kids were all in a training session and they're opening up and they're talking about their, I didn't realize how special it was at the time. Like it's very hard to get people to open up that way. And I was like, I don't mind, but I, I have to tell you, I don't have any more money. And he said, if I feel like it's going to work out, if it works out and you get some money, I'm sure you'll pay me. If not, I, I don't have anything to do right now and I'm enjoying listening to their stories. So I was like, great. So he stayed the rest of the week. And so I had somebody who shot for a week for free wow. because he was into the story and he sent all that footage and we used it to cut the first reel to then take to Ford Foundation and then Ford Games a big grant to start the movie. So that was luck that somebody, just his little comment gave me a little confidence. Yeah. She's doing it right. You know, he didn't know I didn't know what I was doing. Or maybe he didn't say. But it's all, it was also <laughs> a testament to your leadership, your ability to trust, which is part of leadership, and to let go and ha take a leap of faith with this guy who in and of himself showed confidence and a vision and a passion for the project. And so that sounds like an amazing relationship. Do you still work with him at all? Yeah. Yep, we do. So that was 2010. Wow. So, yeah. And do you typically work with the same team? Do you, you know, I, I do end up working with a lot of the same people. I, I like that. I like that we get a language together. Right. I like, I like, you know, the kind of films that I make require a lot of trust and intimacy. If you're making a film about people getting abortions, you can't have an asshole in the room because they're already having like probably a bad day, you know, a bad week, a bad month. And then I think also there's being a woman and being a black woman. I certainly have had my share. Um, it's usually like white guys who will be like, are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure? Uh, okay. Uh, you know, my favorite quote is, I'll do whatever you want. But are you, is that Wait, what you want what? to do? Really? White men? <laughs> Arrogant and, and douchey? Seriously? So when Shocking. that happens, when you're less experienced, it does what you said. It makes you question... And then after a while, you know, like, like this happened to me like last month, like <laughs> wow. I got the, are you sure? I was like, yeah, I'm sure. So you go through like the stages first, you're like, ah, I'm insecure. I'm worried. Then you just get mad. And now I'm like, whatever. Right. <laughs> like, that's your problem. That's your drama. Like, I'm probably not going to call you again. Like, just, you know, so what are you going to do? But I think. For a lot of women and and people, you know, who may not, for a lot of women getting into it, I think that's a common experience, particularly in all the technical things. So people deal with that differently. Some people go learn to shoot because they don't want to deal with it. I'm like, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to be a great shooter. I want a great shooter. So like, and I want someone to collaborate with. So a lot of times I'll be like, what do you think? Because I feel totally secure in what I think and I can express it. But I'm also interested in what the other artist thinks. Of what are they craving? You know, what do they want to feel in that moment? I don't, you know, I don't know everything. It's such a difficult process to be a director, but then be completely open to a DP's suggestions or an editor's suggestions, because part of your job inherently is to call the shots and have a vision and execute on that vision. 
But it's also like in any business or law firm or whatever, how many times you sit in a room and people say things to you and you're like, oh, wow, I never thought of that. That actually is pretty smart. As long as you're confident when you don't agree, you can stand firm and say, that I don't agree with and we're going to do it my way. Like, I happen to hate dissolves. So, you know, there's some things you start to learn that, like, you do have a style, Mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes you'll see them, you know, that work, but not a lot. Yeah. In my film, I had animations tied to specific verbatim dialogue that I had taken over the years with my daughter because I didn't have footage of her talking about the loss of her mother. And animations are like recreations. There are people that love them and there are people that hate them. And there's hardly any in between. But sometimes if you're given an opportunity to explain what they mean, there are people, if they come without judgment, they'll be like, oh, that makes perfect sense. And so you can't like shrivel up and go, all right, all right, I won't use the animation. You know what I mean? Like it's the tendency. And you're right. People get really like in their cups about them. So like we used like animation and film. We just finished the Lady Bird Diaries Mm -hmm. and the film is all archived which was really fun. But then there's some pieces you just can't tell we didn't have archive for. So like Lady Bird's talking to Lyndon Johnson and she's grading his addresses, like his State of the Union address. And she gives him a B plus <laughs> because she says he could have been like more direct. And so like that, you know, we so we did some animations there that I think actually they work for that style movie because they break up the archival, which you need a little break from, mm-hmm. you know? And also it's like, who does the animation? You have to be really rigorous with like, what what is the style? I've seen some like gorgeous lyrical watercolors that are like just what you feel like having, but you didn't know you wanted until you see them. And then you're like, oh yeah, that was great. You know, so I, I think like there's probably no absolutes in film except no dissolves. No dissolves, <laughs> yeah. How about a smash cut? <laughs> we should sometimes root for a good smash cut. Yeah, oh, that's that's what I, that's what I always say. So, t- t- tell me, like, how do you arrive at the subject matter of the films you make? My younger son will um, will if we leave the house together, he'll look at me and he'll say, "Do not speak to anyone," because <laughs> I like talking to people sometimes. So I'm interested in a lot of things. And I think whenever you start, particularly documentary, but probably for narrative too, like you have to kind of be obsessed with it because you're going to be living with it for years. And so if it's just like, oh, I read that article and that's interesting, that's not enough. You ever have people t- say to you, oh, you know what you should make your next film on? Every day. And it's Every like- Every single day. Like, I'm like, do you understand mind? like- you got to go get the money and the rates and the this and the that. And I know. And I'm like, that's you You just listed three years of my life right, right there. For, for your passion, <laughs> not mine. For your passion. <laughs> so I always say to them, you should make that film. Right. You know, and they're like, I can't make a film. I'm like, how do you know? You right. didn't check. That's right. I mean, what they're saying is that this is what they would like to see. Right. So, and I think people don't. And then, of course, there's the, you know, people think documentary is like a hobby. Like you just pick up an iPhone and you just played it at something and that's all that happened. So, you know, but I think you got to be obsessed with it. You got to know that there's material to see, you know, not everything should be a visual project. Not everything should be a feature. Some things should be short, you know, 
how much of a factor is the available archival? A, a big factor. I mean, I'm really, really interested in history and like what studying the past can help us. It might be a, a factor of like, I couldn't, I don't know that I could make Gideon's Army today because it was the only thing I was doing except for my day job. <laughs> and I was just so focused on it, you know, that I could spend the time with them. I mean, it took us three years to think that, you know. And you're talking about, you're talking about your first years. movie, which, by the way, I think was nominated for an Emmy and an, <laughs> and an Indie Spirit Award. So just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, not bad for a first try. Not bad. Went to Sundance, won an award. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I, it might be like, my stage of life, like I'm, I'm really thinking about the next like verite film. Like, you kind of have to clear the decks in a way. A lot of the films right now, there's, there's a lot of pressure right now to finish things a lot more quickly, and that's just the reality of our business. Right. So you get like a year, a year and a half. A year and a half is tough to make, you know, a verite film where you want to see things happen. Mm-hmm. So unless you know that there's a particular thing happening in time. Or you're like, this is a snapshot in time, but enough's going to happen to make this, you know, really immersive movie. Right. right. So you, you have films on uh, well, Gideon's Army, which is about public defenders in the Deep South, and you have Spies of Mississippi, also Trapped, which is about abortion providers in the South, Bobby Kennedy, John Lewis. There seems to be a very common thread, A, from a historical standpoint, B, from the South also and then politics and social injustice and is that your lane and is that the lane you kind of want to stay in i know pete Sousa was kind of a departure but you, then you said your dad was a photographer so i'm curious to know if that sort of led you to pete Sousa. Oh, yeah. amazing by the way yeah no now i think you know like it, it goes back to the the other question you asked which is like that is what i tend to get obsessed with but i i, I also realized that like I'm kind of working through what I'm thinking about sometimes in the movies. So like with P, I was making a movie about John Lewis and then the Pete Sousa project came up and I was so depressed about Trump and so depressed about my naivete, you know, about the country. Like I never before thought I was a naive person. And I thought, I just didn't see this coming. I just believed more in America. And, you know, when I met Pete through Evan Hayes and uh, Jamie and Laura Dern, and they said, they asked if I would be interested in it. And I was like, I am, but I'm busy. And they were like, just come meet Pete. That's always the key. Like if people say, just come meet somebody, like you shouldn't go if you don't want to do it because if they're good, you're going to. So I go meet Pete and we're in Laura Dern's conference room. And then Pete just brings his laptop, he flips it open, and he just does a slideshow, like, you know, boom, boom, boom. He's just going through pictures. He's just talking about them. That's all it was. And like 40 minutes into it, we're crying. All of us are crying because his pictures told the story of America. I believed it. Great White and House it, photographer for people who don't know who Pete Sousa is. So Obama's White House photographer for both terms, but he was also Obama's photographer when he was in the Senate. Oh, I didn't know. And that. that's how he that's how he met Obama. And he was Reagan's White House photographer. So he had experienced, you know, and Pete was a journalist, pure journalist. He was like, I'm here to document what happens. I am not commercial for you. And Obama agreed to that. 
those conditions. And he also agreed to let him be there all the time. He took 2 million photographs. So we got it down to like 10,000 and then to 4,000. <laughs> and, you know, it's not a feel about Obama. It's not that Obama's amazing. It's what does the presidency require? It requires a hardworking, empathetic person who's trying to do their best. You may not agree with them. And Pete would always say, if Mitt Romney was president, I wouldn't have made this, this book. I wouldn't be interested in doing this movie because I might disagree. And I disagree with Obama. I might disagree. But I think that the person is ethical and trying to do their best and thinking about the country, not themselves. Right. So it was kind of like the movie I needed to make to like believe. And it's, it's you know, it is the movie that people write. They say they watch it multiple times. They cry. Like when they're sad, they watch it. <laughs> that was great. I and watched so, that and I loved it. And the other thing about Pete Sousa mm -hmm. that was amazing is that he was an amazing troll of Trump. You know, he was, and so there's humor in there, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and we still like, sometimes I will text Pete and I'll be like, you have a photo for this? And he, he would like, he can, he's got this insane memory and he can literally at a moment's notice, like give the perfect photo to combat whatever MAGA crap happened. For right people funny. who are political geeks and, and paid way too much attention to politics, although everyone should have paid attention during 2016 to 2020. But there are people like Pete Sousa who we looked at during that period to keep us sane. And to me, it's almost, more, it's almost as important as the work he did in the White House, the work he did outside of the White House, because it was such a depressing, depressive time. And it was that kind of levity that made you not just chuckle or laugh, but realize there are still good, smart decent people in the world who are out there and are going to help us get this ship back on track. And, and I'm sure he doesn't get anywhere near the credit he deserves for that kind of role that he played during that period. You know, he really, he really did. Like that is one of the greatest aspects of his public service is that he just wouldn't stop commenting. And in some ways it was, he wasn't going to give up because he had seen what happened in the White House and he knew how important that job was. But, you know, it's Pete that let us know that Obama, the raid on Osama bin Laden happens right after the president leaves the White House correspondence right. dinner. I mean, how crazy is that? Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the other thing in there, which I responded to having worked for ABC News, you know, having worked in a news division, is Pete had to make a sacrifice because he then became an opinion person. And Pete had really taken his journalistic impartiality very, very seriously. He wouldn't vote, you know, he wouldn't comment on, he wouldn't ask, answer questions, political questions, all during his service in the White House. And so he had to decide that he was going to actually make his opinions known. But he did, it, for in him such, that, he did it in such a graceful, classy, non-confrontational non-toxic way it was just perfect really yeah. perfect and you know you could you could also like because we were all getting so riled up by so many terrible things happening you know kids in cages you know the, the ah, horrible like yeah, the horrible like you know otherizing of right. anybody from another country i mean just really frightening things and and Pete can help us step back and say this is absurd 
Yes, it's frightening and terrible, but it's absurd. We are not this. But and he always he really held up people say that. Yeah, he held yeah. up the the opposite. He would always show you that this is the way it was and this is the way it should be. I want to ask you about producing because you do produce a lot of stuff that you don't direct. How do you make that determination whether or not to just get involved as a producer or to take the reins yourself? Sometimes it's a matter of time. Sometimes I think I've learned a lot. And if I think I can be helpful to somebody else and I, I'm interested in the subject matter, but I don't, you know, I'm not the person to make the movie or I don't have the bandwidth to come on to it. Um, it's nice to be involved that other way. Sometimes, you know, broadcasters will ask me, you know, like maybe somebody has a film that has a legal component to it and they think it would be helpful to have somebody with an eye for those issues or sometimes it's just a newer director that they don't know and so I can help bridge but mostly where like I would only do something where I think I can add you know bring a broadcaster bring some money bring some attention you know Philly DA is a great example of that like those are two young directors they lived across the street from Larry Krasner's office and so they had this insane access. They filmed every day because they could film. So I was just like, wow, I wish I could go every single day and film my subject. And that became an eight-part series for PBS. So that's just something like having done The Defenders, I was super interested in what does a progressive prosecutor look like? And I'm actually producing another project about progressive prosecutors. And the documentary space today, the industry has changed so much. Distribution has changed so much. The streamers have changed just since I made my film and got my funding from HBO in the last three, four, five years. In your mind, has it changed more for the better, for the worse? Is it uh, filmmakers of color? Is it easier today mm -hmm. because of the focus on inclusion and diversity? <clears throat> what's, what's your take on all that? I think that if you'd asked me a year ago, <laughs> I would say... It's mostly changed for the better. There are more places to sell to. There are <laughs> the age-old question: Are people interested in documentary? Has been answered. You know, definitively, yes. There's a big audience for the films. And then, you know, I think we all thought, "Oh boy, pandemic! What's going to happen to do?" And people figured out how to work a pandemic. We pivoted. We did remote interviews. You know, everybody learned to Zoom. Everybody learned to I I did. An interview with, you know, Oprah, like by Zoom, you know, we did interviews with Samantha Power by Zoom. So what's happening right now with consolidation of the media entities is a big challenge. And so we've lost CNN films. We've lost Showtime as an entity. Uh, depending on who you ask, Netflix is pulling back on what types of stories they do. I wonder if they would do Adrian Shelley movie. You know, that's you know that's HBO, but I still wonder. Like that, it's a it's a beloved you know figure in independent film. You would think there there would be lots of homes for that. There's only a few homes now, and so with the the loss of real estate, that means the competition is tougher, and when people start to double down on that, ironically, it doesn't mean the costs go down. It means the stakes go up. And so for people like me who have a track record, I will continue to get calls. Maybe the buying is a little slower. It's it's much slower, but I don't think it's gonna go away, you know, Knockwood. 
I think if you're just starting, you know, I don't know how many places there are if you're just starting. And, and the problem, obviously there's a big problem with that, but the biggest problem is people will always start making films. It's how long they can last while they're getting all these rejections and not getting any money. Right. And and then the Veritate follow doc, unless you're a shooter, that's like impossible. Right. Because it's just so expensive. So we had the golden age of documentaries and that all the prices went up. And that's a good thing. People should get paid living wages and get paid well. But once you're at a certain price level, people are going back, you know? Right. And, and it also so now seems you have like these very expensive things and you don't have a, a way to, to place them anymore. Well, it seems like there's more of a focus on what will be most commercial, which is part of the shift to so much true crime. I get Netflix emails every other day and it's like, oh, here's something that we're putting on tomorrow. And it, almost inevitably, it's a true crime series. You know, there's, it's, it's a funny thing. I mean... They certainly must know something we don't know because we keep getting served that and somehow that's the lowest common denominator. I tend to have the feeling that like anything, if you saturate the market with one kind of product, the other things will start to stand out. But the question is how many filmmakers will be left standing by the time right. we're exhausted right. of no, the it's, true crime genre? Yeah, well, it's true crime and then celebrity biopics. That's like this second popular thing. And I think you're right. I think if I was going out in the world today versus five, six years ago to make my film, I might not have. I mean, HBO is still, the doc division is still run by two incredible women. And so there is a passion there that may not exist elsewhere. So there's a good chance that that still could be made, but I, I, I I'm think not sure. Yeah. I'm yeah, I sure. think we're definitely, we are definitely beholden to these, those standouts in the nonfiction space mm -hmm. who have been in at a long time and have seen the ups and downs and who know how to maneuver, you know, and get things across the finish line. And what I'm, uh, you know, we're, we're an ecosystem, you know, the, the, the people who commission insightful, beautiful, lyrical meaningful films want to make them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they want us to stay alive. They're not rooting against us, but they, so I always think about like, how can I be a good partner? You know, like what? I'm not a true crime person because that just depresses me, but like, I like celebrities, you know, like that's okay. There's some story there, you know, so, so I'll, I'll do that. That's, that's well, like the John Lewis fine. film. I mean, I, to me, he's a celebrity, but he's, he's in, a celebrity he's in your yeah, life. He's in he, politics. Yes. And right. he's, Exactly. Such an important so who is historical that? figure. Right. So that's the cross section for me is like, is there, because I want to work, you know, so <laughs> I want to keep working. Mm -hmm. um, but like, there's still got to be a reason, you know, to do it. Like, it's too hard to just be like phoning it in. Right. I don't ever want to phone it in. And I know this is probably an impossible question to ask. It's probably like asking you, which kid do you like most? But do you have a project that is something you're most proud of? I wouldn't say most. I'm proud of them for different reasons. Like, I'm proud of Gideon's Army because I did it. <laughs> I'm proud that it resonated with people. I'm really proud of Trapped because that was really hard. I had no money when I started that. I got a $5,000 grant to shoot in an abortion clinic. Wow. I literally was sitting on the floor in clinics 
for weeks, you know, raise a little money, go to Mississippi, raise a little money, go to Texas. Like it was that kind of like hand to mouth, you know, I'm really proud of Lady Bird because it's a slightly different style. I'm proud of uh, the way I see it with Pete Sousa mm -hmm. because it was, it felt like a departure for me. It felt a little lighter. So I'm proud of all of them. I'm working on something, which I think I'm working on a bunch of things, which are extraordinary. We're doing for HBO, we're doing uh, Eyes on the Prize, mm -hmm. the next installment. So that's six hours. I'm insanely proud of that. And then I'm working on something for MSNBC, which is a story of uh, five men who were exonerated through a reporter's 20 year journey to to get them out of prison and he filmed all 20 years so wow. it's just a remarkable longevity so it's, it's an intersection of a lot of things i've done so so much of what you do is tied to topical issues in the news <laughs> which were in the news 60 years ago and are still in the news i mean you have a docuseries called supreme i mean we're at a place in our country right now where the supreme court is more tarnished <laughs> Then, I mean, and tarnished isn't even a good enough word. It's a cesspool. So I'm curious in our final minutes if we could talk a little bit about just the issues of the day, because there is a lot of cross-pollination with what you do as a filmmaker. So the Supreme Court, for example, what do you make of what's happening <laughs> there? It almost seems surreal. You know, I, it does seem surreal. You know, I used to I used to live on East Capitol Street, which if you know Washington, D.C., is like, East Capitol Street dead ends into the Capitol. And I went to Georgetown Law School. So I used to walk down East Capitol Street towards the Capitol, make a right, walk across in front of the Supreme Court to go to law school. And I was definitely one of those, like, look up at those pillars, read those words, and think, like, what a great country we are, right? And so I had a lot of reverence and respect for the court, as I think most lawyers do, for the court, capital C, Supreme Court. And so, you know, this came about um, Vinnie Malhotra, who used to work at ABC. He literally called me up and said, do you want to do something on the Supreme Court? But this was three years ago. And I was like, yes, I do. This was during lockdown. I was like, yes, but we didn't know what it was. So at first it was, it, the, it evolved over time. And then what we got to is I was like, I think people don't understand, like, the court's always been political. It's just there's always been like checks and balances. So, you know, the story we tell is it, it's a historical story. It starts with the Warren Court, which is famous for Brown v. Board of Education, for Miranda warnings, for in loving, you know, like for all these giant civil rights cases. And that's what most people thought the Supreme Court was. It was like, we got to get to the court. They're going to mete out justice. It's not actually been that way. For a very long time, it's been this rightward shift. So the series charts that shift until today. And to your point about chasing the news is terrible for a documentary because a documentary should be a look back. It should be a thoughtful explanation of something. It's we're really bad. We're not the news. We're really bad at like breaking, breaking, breaking because we're just slower. So you know, we kept having to extend because the court kept doing astonishing things. So I'm happy we did it, but at the same time, it's very frustrating because all the Clarence Sama stuff came after we rocked. <laughs> so, you know, what are you going to do? You have to stop at some point. Right. And sadly, there's not 
an indication that there's not going to be more, you know, so all I can hope is that people are interested now and maybe want to understand that history, but then also that they want to demand more from the court, that they don't want to just throw up their hands and, and post a mean thing on Twitter, but they actually are like, no, we demand better of our justice system. And racism is clearly a, a spine or a through line of a lot of your films. What did you think about when you saw what happened in Tennessee recently? Oh, I think Tennessee, I think Florida, I think so many places. Unfortunately, you know, I have two uh, boy children. And even before Tennessee, I mean, this, this, it really, really started for me with Trayvon Martin. Because my oldest kid was in fifth grade. Mm -hmm. And he came home and he said, and it was the only time he's had a black male teacher in elementary school, only year. And I said, I was today. And he said, it was good. And he said, my teacher said, Eli, put your put your hoodie up. And he and he did. And he said, Is Eli scary? And they had a whole conversation, because Eli being one of the few black kids in the class. And rather than that frightening him, it was helpful to him to be able to put into words the fear he was experiencing. And so that has continued, you know, during lockdown, my younger kid was like, I'm afraid of the outside world. I don't want to leave the house. And you know what I thought, Andy? I thought before I would have said something like, oh, don't, you know, come on, stop it. I couldn't say that. I couldn't say without thinking twice. So what I could say was, we all have to live with some fear and some risk. We can't let it paralyze us. And we're going to all have to take our time and figure out. I'm happy that I'm still shocked. You know, I hope I don't get used to it. I'm getting perilously close to getting used to all this suffering. Because some and of that, it does what seem really to scares me. change. Like some of it, it like, you know, the thing about Tennessee which was so startling to me, was the blatant racism out in the open. Like, it wasn't the Klansmen going into the woods at night and burning a cross with the hoods and the robes on. They were in a court on CNN saying, the two black kids got to go, the white lady stays. <laughs> and we don't care how it looks. That's what's so terrifying. And I think Trump unleashed that monster that was under a rock and then maybe had some shame, but there doesn't seem to be any more shame with that kind of racism and all the, you know, this phobia, that phobia, you know, and, and the more people like DeSantis that are out there just shamelessly playing to that, that lowest common denominator. You know, I, John Lewis said to me, um, cause while, so we followed him for a year and I would say, I'm so worried about kids in cages, Mr. Lewis. I'm so worried about this increasing, you know, division, xenophobia, et cetera. And he would say, he would say, that's why we have to do X, Y, Z. That's why we have to look at it. That's why we have to expose it. That's why. And, and he was, he never stopped being optimistic about the country. And, you know, when I, when I think now is there's something he said, and he was like, when people are feeling the most threatened, that's when you know that real change is happening. And so he kind of saw this explosion of ugliness. It's kind of like excavating, you know, a sore. And he believed that that's when we know we're at the 
precipice of real change and that it's not pretty. And, and I think about that a lot because I think what he, the, like one of the last times I spoke to him, it was after George Floyd died. He was very, very sick. And I said, oh, you know, something so terrible. And he said, every, every country is out protesting. Isn't it marvelous? So like, that's what he focused on. So not to minimize at all what's happening, but, you know, if you look for the, the, the better souls of people, you often will find them. And, and I think it's, you know, we can't be naive. We can't literally take our eyes off the prize. And if anything, because I have kids, because I want to listen, it's like it kind of emboldened me to not be complacent. And I don't always get it right. You know, like as a black person, I grew up in New York City. I didn't know being Jewish was a minority until I was 14. <laughs> and, you know, when I hear anti-Semitic things, I don't always confront the person, you know? And I think I'm more likely to do that now because I think it's, it's our freedoms are dying in the silence. And I want people to speak up for my kids. I better speak up for somebody else's and just be like, because uh, they're else I'm complicit in the conversation, you know? And so I'm trying more to, you know, like it's not okay. <laughs> my husband is black and Jewish. And so people don't know he's Jewish. And when we first got together, I literally got in like a couple of bar fights and he was like, well, you are going to have to not get in a bar fight if people, cause he's like, you will spend your life doing that. I don't know. Maybe we all need to get in a female bar fight. Good trouble as the man said, right? Good trouble. Yeah. Necessary trouble. Well, this optimism and positivity is a great place to end on. Although I can sit here and talk to you for hours and hours and you'll have to come back at some point and continue the conversation. You've been very generous with your time. It's been great to catch up and get your insights into the business. Say hi to David for me. Hey, uh, I will. And uh, good luck to you within the, within the upcoming projects. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Take care. That's episode 77. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446, email us at backroomandy at gmail.com, or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. Or follow us. Uh, you'll get notification every time there's a new episode. So at this point, I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wynn and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Don Porter. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards. And we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.